0: The text for our sermon this morning comes from Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It reads as follows. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. This time we'll call the kids down to the front for the children's sermon. Your parents do a lot of things for you, for your good, things that you don't know about. Parents do lots of things for their children because they love them. You don't remember when you were a baby, do you? She's looking at me like maybe she does. (laughs) Every day when you were a baby, mom and dad took care of you. Maybe big brother and big sister did too. When you cried because you were hungry, mom got you some milk. You don't remember it, but you know it happened, don't you? When you go to bed now, you sleep all night long, usually. You go to bed at night, and you wake up in the morning, ready just in time to get ready to go to school. But when you were a baby... You would wake up a bunch of times during the night. I can see all the parents smiling. Maybe you were hungry. Maybe you were wet. Maybe you were scared. And when you woke up, you'd cry. Mom and dad would come get you. They'd pick you up and you'd stop crying. They'd feed you or change your diaper and you'd feel better and you'd go back to sleep. But in a couple hours, you'd wake up again. Your parents got up with you probably hundreds of times. They took care of you. And they did all those things for you because you were too little to do them for yourself. I mean, does your mom try to feed you a bottle now? Does your dad try to spoon cereal into your mouth now? No. Why? Well, because you're big now and you know how to do those things for yourself. When you were little, mom and dad would feed you. Now you feed yourself. When you were little, mom and dad would dress you. Now you dress yourself. In the verses that we just read, we learn about a very righteous man named Job. The Bible tells us how he loved God and served God. And the Bible tells us how Job was a very good dad. Job taught his children to love and serve God. And Job always made sure that his children were sorry for their sins. He even prayed for them in case they had forgotten to pray. Last week, we learned about baptism, didn't we? Baptism is God's mark that we belong to Him. When someone is baptized, God's name is called over that person to show that they belong to God. Now, this morning, a baby is going to be baptized. His parents are going to have this done for him, just like Job prayed and served God for his own children. You see, when God makes someone His, He also makes their family His too. And that's very good news, isn't it? My mom and dad belong to Jesus, so I know that I belong to him too. I belong to Jesus, so I know that my children will belong to him too. That's God's best promise, the best promise that he ever made. Thousands of years ago, God promised Abraham, I will be your God and I will be the God of your children. And all of those stories that we read in the Bible, they're all about that family. The Bible tells us about all the things that happened to Abraham and Abraham's children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. The baby that's going to be baptized today, his great-grandpa belongs to Jesus. He's sitting back there. This baby's grandparents belong to Jesus. They're sitting right there. This baby's parents belong to Jesus. Jesus. And this baby belongs to Jesus, too. So this morning, we're going to baptize this baby into God's name. Baptism tells us that this baby, like us, needs to be washed from his sins. And it tells us that God promises to wash away our sins and to wash away this baby's sins. So baptism is the mark that this baby belongs to Jesus. Just like Job, these parents are doing something very important for their baby. Your parents did it for you, too. So you can always be thankful that God put you into a Christian family. This is God's greatest promise. After we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until in all things we become agreeable to it. Amen. There's a devotional book that comes up pretty regularly in the Women's Guild meetings. The book's about what we would call providence. That is, God overruling all things for His special purposes. The author shares amazing stories of these providences, what he calls God-winks. And we've all experienced that, I'm sure, everything fell into place at just the right time and just the right way to meet our need. And most of the time, we didn't even know we were going to have that need when things started to line up. Well, I'd like to share one of those God winks with you this morning. When we began this series on the Heidelberg Catechism, a baptism wasn't even on the horizon. We've skipped a couple Sundays even, uh, Mission Fest, and I was out of town one Sunday uh, this summer. So the schedule has never been set in stone. It's not set in stone now. But after the foundation meeting last month, was it last month or earlier, uh, Laura approached me about having been baptized, and she and Brandon asked for November 12. Of all the subjects that our catechism lesson could be about, it just so happens to be infant baptism? I think that's a God wink. God overruled all these things so that He lined up perfectly, and our sermon this morning is about the very thing that God planned for us to do. I can only hope that you find that as beautiful as I do. Well, our subject is baptism again, but we're going to come at it from a different angle. Last week, we saw what its purpose is. Today, we'll see to whom it is to be applied. So our outline is, number one, what baptism isn't. Secondly, why it is for infants, and thirdly, the objections handled. To answer what baptism isn't, we first of all have to say what it is. Baptism is a picture of our need to be born again, of our need to be washed from our sins. And it seals God's promise to do just that. See, we can't be so worried about someone accusing us of holding a magical view of the sacraments that we won't say what the Scriptures actually do say. God works through means, but it's still God who works. Preaching converts sinners, but it is God who convicts the sinner and changes his heart. Prayer meets our needs, but it is God who answers those prayers. Bible reading strengthens our faith, but it's still God who strengthens us. God uses means. And so we're not overstepping the lines to say that God often grants the new birth simultaneous with baptism because it is the seal of God's promise to beget us anew. Now, our Reformed forefathers were were very careful about this. They believe that many of God's children are already born again in the womb, and there's biblical evidence for that. John the Baptist and Jeremiah the prophet are two examples. Most likely, so is Timothy. They also believe that many of God's children are born again at their baptism. Baptism signifies the need to be born again, so why wouldn't God grant the new birth during the sacrament that seals that very promise? Others may be born again later in life, but baptism is the seal of God's promise regardless of when they actually experience the new birth. In John 1, verse 33, John the Baptist tells us that it is Jesus who baptizes. Now, the outward act was done by John, but the inward act is done by Christ at whatever time he wills. In other words, the pastor administers the sacrament, but it is God who performs it. And these two may or may not be simultaneous, and the timing isn't the determining factor anyway because it's God's power that washes us from sin, not the water itself. And so we're careful not to separate things that God has joined together. If there really is nothing spiritual going on during the sacraments, then why did Paul warn about judgment for those who partake of the supper unworthily? You see, we don't separate what God has joined together. Now, our catechism gets right to the heart of this issue because it asks, okay, if baptism isn't the actual washing with Christ's blood, then how come the Bible calls it the washing of regeneration and washing away of sins? And the answer is that God always calls the sacraments my covenant in order to cement their connection in our minds. You see, technically, they aren't the actual covenant, they're its signs and seals, but Signs and seals don't mean anything unless they actually signify and seal something real. And that right there protects us from either opposite error. We don't treat the sacraments like magic. We don't belittle them either. That brings us to the second question of why is it then for infants? Now, we're only going to scratch the surface here. There are way more, believe me, way more arguments than what we'll present. I just want to keep things simple and moving quickly. And so, we're just going to present a few positive arguments. And the first one would be this. God's dealings with His people have always included their infant children. Think about it. If Adam hadn't sinned, His children would have inherited his sinless nature. They would have all lived forever too. Nobody disputes that. The Bible says that all men sinned in the transgression of Adam. He acted for us and we acted in him. And then when God made the covenant of grace with Adam, he proclaimed the gospel in these words. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. You see, the covenant speaks of descendants. Seed. After the flood, when God reaffirmed this covenant of grace with Noah, he said, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your seed. In Genesis 17, when God reaffirmed this covenant with Abraham, the promise was the same. Behold, my covenant is with you and your seed after you. When God brought Israel, the children of Israel, into this covenant at Mount Sinai, And when he reaffirmed the covenant with the next generation at Moab, their children were clearly included. I mean, first of all, that was successive generations, for crying out loud. But just before Moses died, he addressed the whole nation. Deuteronomy 29.10 tells us who he addressed. The men standing before the Lord their God with their little ones and their wives to enter into the covenant of the Lord their God. On the day of Pentecost... Peter addresses the crowd with God's promise to Abraham from Genesis 17. This promise, Peter says, is to you and to your children, and as many as the Lord our God shall call. Including the children of believers is a notable feature of God's dealings with His Old Testament church. Are we to assume that the New Testament, which is the same in substance as the Old, and excels it in all of its benefits and blessings, that it lacks this feature? Secondly, the normal, loving relationship between parents and children provides a strong argument in favor of the church membership of the infants of believers. I mean, once you've acknowledged their membership, you can't really deny them the sacrament of membership, can you? How can you be a member without the sign of membership? And nature itself... Pleads the cause of children. All across the world, across time, across every culture, race, and language, the bond of love between parent and child is displayed. Are we supposed to believe that the church, which is the ultimate family, suppresses or denies this bond? Imagine a poor, homeless widow with two or three small children. What would happen if someone offered her food and shelter... But on the condition that it was only for her, her children were to be excluded. What would mom do? Well, she'd obviously decline the offer. She'd be deeply offended. This is cruelty. You offer me help, but the so-called help condemns my own flesh and blood to starvation? The church membership of the infant children of the Old Testament saints is a clear indication of God's will. It's a hard sell to say that God no longer wills children to be members of His visible church when Scripture contains over 3,000 years of evidence to the contrary. Everyone acknowledges that the children of Old Testament saints were included in the church, and it's equally clear that the church is the same in substance now as it was then. So why shouldn't we assume that the infant children of professing believers are members of the church just as they were for thousands of years before? You see, if if infants were once members, and the church remains the same, then they still are members, unless a positive command of God excludes them. Because it was a positive command of God that put them into the church to begin with. So unless we find a command of God throwing them out of the New Testament church, we have to assume that God's command to include them is still in force. If the children of believers were proper candidates for the sacrament of the new birth under the Old Testament, then surely they're proper candidates for the sacrament of the new birth now under the New Testament. And that's as clear as day in the very first Christian baptism recorded in Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes God's promise to Abraham from Genesis 17. The promise is to you and to your children. Peter is referring them back to the old form of the sacrament and his Jewish audience would have understood that instinctively. And in fact, let's imagine that the privilege of membership was taken away from the children of the New Testament believers. That could not have been done without offending these parents. It would have produced a strong dislike in their hearts for this new Administration of the covenant. How am I supposed to love this new administration of God's covenant when it excludes my children, especially when they were included under the old form? Let me just keep the old. But we don't find a hint of that anywhere in the New Testament. No cases are recorded in the scripture of parents complaining that their children were kicked out of the church. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jewish converts to Christianity were baptized. These people were steeped in the practice of infant church membership. And they all submitted to the sacrament of baptism. And during the administration of that baptism, Peter quotes God's promise to Abraham, to you and to your children. Shouldn't we expect an uproar from these people? If at the same time, Peter were to tell them that their children were no longer included in God's church? These early Christians understood that the New Testament church is the continuation and fulfillment of Old Testament Israel, so they didn't need an argument to convince them that their children were included. They always had been. Now, last week, we saw how the New Testament contains examples of family baptisms. Are we to imagine that none of these households had any children? Children are what make it a household. And you know what? Scripture actually says that. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have the list of the requirements for an elder. And one of the requirements is that his children must not be troublemakers. And the explanation that Paul gives is this. If a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how is he supposed to manage the household of God? Now, that tells us two things. A, a household is a household because it has children. And B, the church has child members. The church of Ephesus had children members. We know that because they're addressed in the epistle. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. These children were considered members of the church because just like their parents, they were in the Lord. The fifth commandment assumes child membership. Honor your father and your mother, as does the Lord's Prayer our Father. Those who reject infant baptism are forced to assume that these first Christians who had always considered their children members of the church were now taught that their children were to be excluded. More than that, they're forced to assume that these new believers accepted this change without the least complaint. And even worse, they're forced to assume that such a backward, awful, backward change took place in the constitution of the church And yet this change was so insignificant that it never merited mention in any of the 27 books of the New Testament. So we move now to our third point, which is the objections against our practice, reformed practice of infant baptism. Now, again, we're not going to handle them all. There are a lot of them. But for my money, they're all variations of this one same argument. The old trusty, rusty objection. There's no New Testament command for it. That objection has been raised a million times, it's been refuted a million times, and somehow that's never dampened the spirits of its supporters. Almost every objection against infant baptism is a variation of that one. But once we've established that baptism, as our catechism teaches us, comes in the place of circumcision because it signifies the same thing and it seals the same promise, well, that argument vanishes like mist. For thousands of years, believers were constantly assured and reassured that their children belonged to the church. So why should we expect this principle to be reasserted? It was a principle that had stood since Eden. The New Testament doesn't say a lot about the church membership of the infant believers or the, in, the children of believers because there's no substantial change that took place. The real question is, Why is nothing said to these first converts who naturally expected that their children were included, that their children were now excluded? In fact, if we follow that logic, we'd be forced to exclude women from the Lord's Supper. Because where in the New Testament do we find a command, a positive command that women should partake of the Supper? When it was instituted, only men were present. They were reclining when they partook, and all across the world, Christians partake of the supper standing, kneeling, or sitting. And nobody objects that that's invalid because the participants aren't reclining. And in fact, the Passover, which was the predecessor to the supper, required its participants to eat standing up, and yet Jesus and His disciples ate it reclining. Now, of course, it is proper, that women partake of the Lord's Supper. But what do we base that assertion on? Well, we base it on the same type of reasoning we use to support infant baptism. There's no explicit command because it's already assumed. The real issue, the real question, dear friends, is the binding authority of the Old Testament. Is it really God's Word on equal footing with the New Testament? And if so, then what it teaches is fulfilled by the New Testament, not replaced. So the objector asks, secondly, well, then why don't we find any examples in the New Testament? And that's just a weaker form of the same argument. Like I said, it's all the same argument. And this one is worse because it's just begging the question. The objection is saying, I don't believe it, and so I can't see it. Well, of course you can't see it. You don't believe it. But Scripture records household baptisms. And we've already seen that it's the existence of children that makes it a household. So to say that there are no infant baptisms in the New Testament is to bear false witness against Scripture. The stronger argument is that the New Testament contains no baptisms of adults who were born to Christian homes. Surely that's got to count for something. Well, infants can't repent and believe. So they're not proper recipients of baptism. And it never ceases to amaze me that someone can raise that objection while accepting that it was perfectly legitimate for an eight-day-old Israelite baby to receive the sacrament of circumcision, which Paul says in Romans 4 was a seal of the righteousness of faith. Now, those eight-day-old infants who received the seal of the righteousness of faith were no more capable of faith and repentance than any infant of Christian parents that present them for baptism but we should probe that idea a little deeper. Why does a baby cry when it's hungry? Why doesn't he just say, hey, mom, I'm hungry? Well, he hasn't developed the ability to speak yet, and so we're talking about something very deep, some sort of consciousness or, or, or form of thought without words, without, you know, in the absence of words. It's almost at the level of instinct, That a baby cries. Now, that cry gets mom's attention, and that's exactly how God designed it to be. And that instinctive cry is a perfect picture of faith because it's the cry of the helpless to the only one who can help. Jesus says, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Faith is the cry of the helpless to the only one who can help. Yeah, but what good can sprinkling a little water do on a baby do? And we might ask, well, what good did circumcising an eight-day-old Israelite baby do? To even ask that question is to insult God's wisdom. Baptism is a, is a sign of important truths, and it's a seal of important promise, promises. Can anyone honestly say that there's No advantage in doing something that holds up before us great gospel promises that are of deep interest to us and our children? Do we not benefit by attending a sacrament that signifies our fallen nature and God's way of saving us by Jesus' blood and His cleansing spirit? Now, God established the family and the church, which is the ultimate family, for the great task of training its children in the knowledge and fear of God. And any form of the Christian religion that doesn't embrace its children is defective. Yeah, but but it doesn't guarantee the new birth. Now, what that objection is actually saying is that our system corrupts the church by filling it with unconverted members. Now, there's a lot that we could take issue with in that objection because even if you could prove that most of those who are baptized are never born again... That doesn't say anything about baptism itself. How many people read the Bible without profit? How many people attend church without profit? How many people attend Bible studies or other church activities without benefiting? Do we chuck them all because some people don't benefit? That same objection could have been made about circumcision. It was the sign of the new birth. How many received it without receiving the spiritual benefit? And in fact, that objection can be made about anything that God has instituted. If God institutes something, surely it must be significant. It must be meaningful. It must be important. But if its influence is moral, well, that can be undermined by unbelief. Do we just throw it all out? No, we don't hold the magic view of the sacraments. The sacraments don't have power in themselves. So it is possible to receive them without receiving the benefit that they're intended to convey. But the fact of the matter is, our children are placed in very favorable circumstances when they are baptized because baptism binds Christian parents to begin teaching spiritual truth as soon as the children are capable of being taught. What's the primary lesson of the Christian life? Isn't it learning to obey our Heavenly Father? And children learn this lesson in a form that is suited to their abilities when they're taught to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. If a child learns to instinctively obey his human father, how much easier is it going to be for him to learn to obey his Heavenly Father? I don't see how anyone can say that infant baptism seldom realizes its meaning. There's no way to make such a statement in the light of God's promise. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So in summary, from Eden to the present, God's promise is to you and to your seed after you. Baptism is God's mark of ownership. He claims ownership of us, and of our children, and we recognize this by presenting them for baptism. Now, we know that God's power alone grants the new birth, and for that reason, we trust that God ordinarily grants the new birth to our covenant children at their baptism. Scripture teaches us to consider our children as born again unless and until they prove themselves otherwise. I mean, Why teach our children to read the Bible and pray if we don't really think that they're Christians? Today, we are going to witness the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 7, 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. You know, our church is very special in this regard. We are a living demonstration of this promise. Because for the most part, our church membership is several generations deep. This baby, his parents, his grandparents, his great grandparents are and have been members of this same congregation. This baptism is a witness to God's covenant faithfulness in the line of generations. Let us pray.